think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Konnichiwa, junkies! I am working away on Shakedown, the Crypt Book 1. I'm still in the outlining stage of the book, about halfway through the outline, so hopefully I'll have that done and I will get cracking on it next week. The outline is tricky because I have to set this up as a five-book overall arc for this series, yet make the stories in Book 1 resonate. And make sure I give you a beginning, a middle, and an end So book one doesn't just stop and then you have to go buy book two to find out what happens next. Now, I want you to buy book two, but I want to make sure that if you get book one, you get a full story, you get the end of a story. And if you want to continue this series, you can. You don't want to continue. It's okay. That's totally up to you. Friday, April 1st was Sigler Ascension Day. That's the international holiday celebrating when my indie paperback ancestor hit number one on Amazon's horror and sci-fi list and was the number two fiction book overall behind Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. That happened because junkies just like you bought that paperback on April 1st, the day I asked everybody to buy it. That drove the rank up and led to great things. That was... 15 years ago, you guys, way back in 2007, before ebooks were a big thing, before audiobooks were a big thing. And that success, thanks to all of you who were around back in the day, you knew guys, we'll get you, you will get you something too. It'll be all right. Thanks to all of you that led to my five book deal with Random House, the first novel of which was Infected. And I have been a full time writer ever since. So happy Sigler Ascension Day, junkies. Hopefully, for Sigler Ascension Day 2023, I won't be as busy writing and we'll be able to do something cool and all celebrate together. That is it for my talkie talk for this week. Let me get you caught up on the story and we'll all have a nice bowl of cinnamon toast crunch. Previously on The Stone Wolves, the Oleron crew has penetrated the research facility on MT-734 where Druze Thorn races to send his Cruncher superweapon off the planet and into the hands of the Ramada. Aya, Redwire, Lulz, and Beans are going for the Cruncher, while the Killer terrorizes those outside the facility. Wearing his Void Cloak camouflage and off the drugs that kept his murderous nature in check, Killian is finally unleashed upon his enemies. Chapter 24 The Orphaner I had tried not to scream. Tried and failed. Bullets ripped up the corridor walls and ceiling, made holes that hissed air for a split second before fast fill squooshed into place and instantly hardened. 
She knew that if she hadn't been standing behind beans, she would have been mowed down. The airless surface of MT-734 carried no sound, but in the facility's atmosphere, she could hear just fine. Goldman's assault rifle, whatever weapon Beans was firing, the cracks from the weapons of the guards, and the blare of the siren. She and the others had made it halfway to the factory floor before that siren had sounded. Why it had sounded, she didn't know. But she was almost certain it hadn't been because she'd missed something in the security hack. Not that it mattered now. Bullets didn't give a damn who was at fault. Press the attack, she heard Goldman say. Aya, cover our rear! Aya winced as a line of holes stitched the corridor wall to her right, holes that were black with empty space before they turned lumpy and white from fast fill. With one hand, she aimed her rifle down the corridor. She put the other hand on the metal back of the big Ursa Major suit to make sure she stayed centered behind the bullet-blocking walking tank. Beans was moving forward at a good clip. Aya had to shuffle fast to keep up. Beans, Goldman said. Two ahead, bunched together, take them out. I will deliver the creamy justice of his milkiness. Aya felt the Ursa Major suit shudder, heard the sharp roar of what had to be a rocket, felt the deck shudder beneath her feet. She heard agonized screaming, human and quith warrior. Then, down the corridor, from the hub they'd just left, she saw a key step partially into view. It held a rifle. A rifle that swung toward her. Goldman's words flashed through her thoughts. If you have to use it, you keep pulling that trigger until what you're pointing at stops moving. And yet, it was Aya who could not move. The key fired. Aya felt something hit her chest. She fell back against Beans, who kept moving down the hall. Aya dropped to her butt. The key leaned out for another shot, taking aim. Aya grabbed at her Y-57 rifle, pulled the trigger before she'd even aimed, shot three holes in the deck flooring just past her feet. The key fired again. Pain erupted in Aya's hand. She jerked it away from her rifle, reflexively, as if the rifle were hot and it had burned her. Then she grabbed at it again, clumsy and desperate, as the key took a steady aim. A flash of blue light. The key stumbled into view, black blood spurting from a smoldering hole in the side of its upper body. The six-legged sentient turned toward an unseen threat, trying to bring its rifle to bear. It didn't have time to finish the turn. A blade of crystal flashed out, there, then gone. The top of the key's head slipped away as if it were sliding on melted black butter. The body fell into a shivering pile. The half-head's vocal tubes twitched, perhaps trying to scream, but with no air forced into them, they were as silent as the surface of the airless planet itself. Viden fluttered into the corridor, her long blade, now smeared with both red and black blood, in her mouth flaps. Aya looked at her right hand. Her pinky hung at a sickening angle, flopping when she moved. Her suit had been breached, internal sealant filling the tear. Was the pinky still attached? She didn't know. Viden was suddenly in front of her, at chest level, the long blade in one mouth flap, the key's rifle in the other. The round did not penetrate, the hurrah said. You are fine. Fine? Aya tried to take a breath, felt a new pain rage through her chest. Had the bullet broken a rib? Her sternum? 
Beans, you got him, Aya heard Goldman say. Well done. That's four guards down. Five, Viden said. Aya glanced at the dead key, at the body oozing out a puddle of inky black. If the intel is right, that's all the guards, Goldman said. Tighten up and move forward. Be sharp. It's not like the rest of the staff will give us a free pass. Let's go get that bomb. Uh, I'm hit. Aya's own voice sounded distant to her. She can continue, Vidan said, if she is not weak of spirit. Despite a shucked-up hand, despite having come a hair's breadth from taking a bullet in the face, Aya's anger surged. I was shot, she said. I'm not weak of... Her body lurched as someone yanked her up. Aya found herself both standing on her own feet and staring into the visor of Yitzhak Goldman. Be hurt later, he said. We have to move. Aya felt a new spike of pain as something was pressed against her damaged chest armor, the key's rifle. Your weapon is unusable, Viren said. The old ones have provided. With her good hand, Aya took the weapon. She wondered how, exactly, she was supposed to shoot it. A quick glance down told her she wasn't going to shoot her own rifle, not with one hand, two hands, or ten hands. The trigger array was bent, twisted, and streaked with fresh blood. Her blood. Beans, protect Aya, Goldman said. Let's finish this. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The killer snarled as he swung the orphaner pistol downward. The warrior Merc never saw death coming. The hatchet blade crunched into the warrior's helmet through the helmet through the chitinous skull, and then through the Merc's brain. The blow carried so much strength 
that the hatchet blade drove deep into the trunk, stopping between the warrior's middle arms. In a spray of red blood, the quith folded outward, the left flap going left, the right flap going right. The warrior's half-split body fell onto the dead stone of MT-734. A line on that stone suddenly glowed, a line that gleamed straight and true across the ragged surface, a line that pointed to the left of a jagged boulder. The killer had seen these lines many times before. He knew better than to question them, to doubt what his extra sense was telling him. He turned, aimed the orphaner toward that boulder, and gently squeezed the trigger. Blood dripped down from the hatchet blade, freezing before it landed, little round red jewels breaking and bouncing against the granite. The orphaner fired at exactly the moment a Sklorno Merc started to lean around the boulder, trying to catch sight of the monster that was tearing her unit to pieces. In that last split second, maybe she saw the killer, maybe she didn't, but no one would ever know. The 700 caliber bullet caught her in the chest, just under the flex-armored tentacles holding her carbine. Time had slowed for the killer, and he saw the impact in exquisite detail. The bullet punched through her armor like it wasn't even there, mushrooming inside her body, spreading kinetic energy that, for an instant, swelled her combat suit-covered trunk to twice its diameter. In that same instant, the marble-sized bit of metal blasted out her back, making a ragged flesh exit hole five times the size of the entrance wound. She was dead before she hit the ground. The killer moved north, the lines in the ground telling him where to go to avoid the response from the three mercs left in that squad, and from the eight who were undoubtedly reacting, trying to find the sentient who had already killed five of their comrades. They would not find the killer. You can't find what you can't see. You can't find what your sensors and targeting systems can't detect. He'd hit the mercs hard and fast. They'd be coming after him, but slowly. Even if they advanced, they'd been rocked and were on their heels. That gave the killer a few moments to take in the real threat. The hurrah-built EFT that was about to lift off and the loaded 18-wheeler that was almost at the second EFT, the Ezekiel-class one. He was only 50 meters from the hurrah EFT. Enough time to angle toward the prow, use his armor-piercing rounds to put five shots through the cockpit's crystal canopy. Not a guarantee he could stop the thing from lifting off, but an above-average chance. He adjusted his void cloak camouflage to full and moved fast toward the EFT. The light-bending tech made him a ghost. As he sprinted, he saw one merc, then two, then three, moving toward the place he'd been. The killer would deal with them later. The loaded EFT came first, then the truck, then the second EFT. The killer glanced right toward the facility, seeing the 10-meter-tall clear wall that revealed the blue factory equipment and yellow catwalks inside. That would come forth if Red and Lulz didn't finish the job first, which he knew they would. The building's flat roof flared like a sun, a blinding flash of light that made the killer raise one arm to block the glare. The broken granite expanse blazed as if a second star had risen, a star that cast an odd, greenish light. The killer glanced left, for a moment thinking the strange new illumination 
could somehow defeat his cloak's light-bending technology, that he would see his shadow there, but he did not. The cloak was working fine. He cast no shadow, and if he cast no shadow, he could keep moving without fear that the mercs could see him, could coordinate their fire on him. Then the killer glanced back toward the facility, and when he did, he saw something he'd never seen before. Something bad. His void cloak. It was glowing, with a pale, radioactive gleam. He angled right, almost lurching. Bullets and beams hit the area where he'd just been, chipping rock, melting stone. The killer changed angle again, glowing cloak flaring around him. A tall boulder, one that cast a stubby shadow across the greenlit stone. He had to reach that boulder, get whatever cover he could, because he wasn't a shadow anymore. He was the glowing target of eleven mercs and the two hurrah fighter craft that were already closing in. This is Barge One. We have liftoff, heading for home. A hurrah voice coming from the control room's secondary holotank. In that tank, Druge watched the hurrah-built EFT craft fly away from MT-734, headed up to the void. Half of the job's last phase completed. Druge focused on the main holotank, on the colored icons dotting a realistic map of the area north of the facility. Kill him, Commander, Druge said. But if he's down and wounded, bring him to me. Understood, Lord Thorne, the mercenary said. Unit 1 Commander, out. Even the Merc Commander was getting in on the act. He understood Druge's star was ascending. Druge watched the holotank, watched the icon that represented Killian Carbonaro, now glowing green instead of red, a lovely touch, scramble across the surface of MT-734. Eleven blue dots closed in on him, a steadily tightening net of death. A blue dot blinked out. Ten left. That was to be expected. It was the killer, after all, one of the deadliest sentients in existence. But for all of the man's skills, for all of his predatory instincts, for all of his speed and strength and savagery, the thing that had given the killer an edge was that void cloak. Any other sentient in a similar cloak would be deadly and dangerous. The killer without the cloak was deadly and dangerous. But the killer in that cloak? A combination that seemed unbeatable. On Laramie 3, Carbonaro had left Druge to die, to watch his own family rot. Carbonaro had taken hopscotch and left. What Carbonaro should have done was not only kill Druge, but destroy any recording of the event. When the Vermada had come for Druge, he'd had his rescuers download every bit of footage recorded from that day. In the decades that followed, Druge had had the footage analyzed and reanalyzed and re-reanalyzed, and he'd spent a fortune in Vermada gemstones to have some of the galaxy's best physicists crack the code of the Void Cloak's light-bending ability. Those physicists had conceived a way to overwhelm the Cloak's tech turned that tech on itself. A combination of wavelengths, soft X, far infrared, and very low frequency radio might make the cloak do something it had not been designed to do. Instead of the fabric wrapping light around it, from one side to the other, the 
floodlight combination, they hypothesized, would make the cloak luminesce. Only a hypothesis, but one upon which Druge could pour time and money. Time and money, that had paid off. What was invisible became a bright beacon. The blue dots closed in. The green dot hid behind a boulder. Hide all you like, scum. Today it all ends for you. Today my family's death is avenged. Druge had avoided putting in weapons or sensor suites here that would draw attention. Had avoided having any ground combat vehicles. Hiding in plain sight is always more effective when you are boring as hell. But the floodlights? Those had been easy. He'd ordered the various parts and put the thing together himself, turning the edge of the roof into a powerful light generator designed to make cockroaches glow in the dark. Lord Thorne, the controller said. The Isaacs are asking for permission to fire. Druge held up a hand. Not yet. Let the mercs finish him. Would the killer take some of them out? Certainly. But ten of them? Unlikely. If he'd been invisible, those mercs might already be dead. But he was not invisible. And he was about to get his ass handed to him on a trilumite platter. The blue dots closed in on the green. The noose drew tighter. This is Unit 1 Command, said the voice from the holotank. We have a hostile moving toward the transport truck. Get a lock on him, now! The green icon hadn't budged. Druge frowned for a moment, not understanding. Then it became obvious. Carbonaro had ditched his void cloak. Got him locked, another voice said. A yellow icon appeared. An icon heading straight for the 18-wheeler lumbering toward the EFT. Eight of the blue icons altered course, spread out in a pattern that would let them close in on the threat. Two reached the green icon, probably just to make sure the killer hadn't pulled some last trick. It's just the cloak, the Unit 1 commander said. Can someone shoot that bastard, please? Before anyone could answer, Drew saw the yellow icon reach the 18-wheeler. Shuck a duck, Drew said. Commander, do not shoot that truck. We need it. Go in and get him, and have someone bring me that cloak. In the holotank, the icon representing the truck drove straight for the remaining EFT. One cargo container already loaded inside, a second on the truck, then the third, which was still inside the facility. To finish the decades-long mission, all the mercs had to do was catch and kill one man. Just one damn man. We'll get him, Unit 1 commander said. All hands tighten the arc. Looks like he's continuing to barge, too. We'll take him there. Outside of it, if we can. Inside of it, if we have to go in and get him. Close in. Barge 2 flight crew, prepare to repel a border. Druge didn't like this development. Not one iota. Lord Thorne, the controller said. We have a problem inside the facility. Weapons fire in the factory floor. Staff is reporting armed hostiles and casualties. A wave of pain washed over Druge. His heart hammered. So, the killer hadn't come alone after all. Aya crawled on her belly to the edge of the yellow catwalk. 
Water sprayed down on her, the droplets gathering on the metal grate, flickering with reflected firelight. She wrong-handedly maneuvered the key rifle over the edge and fired down on the floor. She knew she wasn't going to hit anything. That didn't matter. The facility staff down there scrambled for cover. Her position would keep them distracted long enough for Redwire or Lulz to close in. Her right hand was all but useless. To make sure she didn't catch the pinky on something and possibly tear it right off, she'd removed her glove, and what white-hot agony that had been, then put the glove back on, jamming her pinky and ring finger both into the space that only the ring finger was supposed to occupy. And whatever color agony came after white-hot, she'd felt that then. Bullets rang off the catwalk around her, chipping yellow paint, denting steel grate. Aya half-rolled, half-scrambled to the back edge of the catwalk, wedged herself inside the blue-painted frame of some machine or other. Another burst sprayed her area, and this time she saw that the enemy fire was coming from behind a freestanding, headless, blue bipedal robot standing near the tall crystal window that looked out onto the surface of MT-734. A quith leader down there, using the still robot for cover. Through the window, Aya saw the flickering light of a ship engine rising up into the sky. Skipper, come in, she said. Skipper, I think one of the EFTs just lifted off. When his voice came back, she heard gunfire. His? Someone else's? Maybe both. Got my hands full, he said. Goldman's voice barked in her ear. I have one problem at a time, he said. Our job is to clear these guys out and secure the facility. Beans, get your tiny ass in here and help her. And for the love of, well, of me, don't use another rocket. I will comply, godling. I and the team had hit the factory floor and faced immediate fire from the facility staff, who were armed and fighting for their lives. Beans had fired a rocket, maybe the same kind he'd used back in the corridor. The explosion had killed a few Vermada. Unlike the earlier guards, these were not trained soldiers. They moved like idiots. In the explosion, something had caught fire, fire that still burned, raising a haze of smoke to the ceiling. The spraying water had yet to put the flames out. She'd felt the heat of that whooshing fire even through her suit. She hadn't waited for orders. She'd gotten the hell out of the way, climbing up to the first catwalk to get clear. Once there, Goldman had ordered her higher, to the top catwalk, and told her to look for targets of opportunity, which had someone shooting at her. Again. Another spray of bullets traced her area. She tucked tighter, fought against the scream building inside her chest. For his milkiness! She heard the roar of a minigun, the brief, choked scream of a human. Aya should have stayed tucked up, but her body reacted without her, made her crawl out of the hiding space and onto the catwalk's wet metal. What a surreal scene. Water from the sprinkler system, pouring down all across the factory floor, the blue machines, the blue robots, and the yellow catwalks. The thick yellow I-beams that supported hanging cranes, beams that stretched across the ceiling through the gathering smoke from one side of the factory to the other. Muzzle flashes from the ground floor, from the second-level catwalk, and from behind a dented, forest-green cargo container similar to the ones that had been driven out by the truck. And, in the middle of the factory, 
On the wide sublevel trench that could be closed off by a retractable floor, a combination of modern machines and the strangest contraptions she'd ever seen. Abernessian Tech Where modern factory tech had that look of sharp edges, mostly straight lines and smooth surfaces, the alien tech, if that's what it was, was curves and whirls and long bending parts, parts that glimmered slightly from some soft internal energy. Even with bullets flying, her stomach tight with fear, her chest hurting with each breath, her hand screaming, the place on fire, the first EFT flying away, and her friend in danger, Aya couldn't clear her thoughts of an undeniably evil reality. Sentience of the Milky Way were helping an alien race build a weapon that might have the power to destroy an entire planet. From her side of the factory, down on the first floor, she saw beans moving his Ursa Major suit sheeted with water. Bullets sparked off his hulking form, chipping away old paint or kicking up bursts of rust. The scientists and techs didn't have the firepower needed to penetrate the battleschmack's armor. Beans moved toward the quith leader, who cowered behind the big robot. The gunfire had died down. Not gone, but less. Either the scientists and techs were dead or surrendering, or they had fled the factory floor, looking for safer ground. Viden fluttered up from below, hovered at eye level with Aya. Young human, are you able to fight? Aya nodded dumbly, reached out her good hand to grab at the key rifle she dropped. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Her stammering words were cut off by a cannon roar that echoed through the factory. I had a split second to see a trail of white smoke reaching down from the rear of the factory floor toward the tall crystal windows, angling through the open upper deck space. Ursa Major vanished in an orange and black fireball. Beans, no! Aya screamed as her head turned on its own, her eyes reactively retracing the smoke trail up to the roof. Atop a yellow horizontal crane beam, she saw a human man. A man holding a rocket launcher on his shoulder, the same kind the key marks had carried. A rocket launcher aimed at Aya. Viden buzzed right, trying to fly clear just as the man fired. Aya saw the rocket coming, heard and felt something hammering her, as if a giant foot had kicked her, then the deck below her gave way and she was falling. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon.
every five minutes. A transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.